some movies go through a long development process mired by red tape. This is not one of those movies. Work on the movie began in 2009 when Disney bought the film rights to a novel called The Finest Hours, the true story of the U.S. Coast Guard's most daring sea rescue. The book was by Michael J. Tugius and Casey Sherman. If there was a hiccup, it was when director Robert Schwenke left in 2014 to go direct Insurgent from the Divergent series movies. Craig Gillespie was called in to direct. Craig was just coming off another based on a true story film for Disney called Million Dollar Arm. After he came on board, casting was done and the film began shooting in September of 2014. With a budget of $80 million and over 1,000 visual effects shots provided by the Motion Picture Company, or MPC, in London, The Finest Hours ended up being a net loss for Disney at the box office as it made a little more than $50 million. Screenwriters Paul Tomasi and Eric Johnson had the chance to do something not everyone does, interview the actual people who lived the story. Since they had a chance to talk to the survivors, does that mean the story was historically accurate? Let's find out as we learn the true story of The Finest Hours. I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. Before we jump into today's story, I wanted to take a few moments to chat about Patreon. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a third-party website that lets you directly support content creators like me. So if you're enjoying this show, it'd mean a lot if you help pay for the coffee that I drink while I'm writing and recording the show. You can sign up to be a patron of the show over at patreon.com slash based on a true story podcast. That's all one word. There's no obligation. But if you can offer some support, it'd help make sure that I can continue paying the numerous costs of the show and continue providing what you hopefully find as quality content. And whatever help you can offer goes a long way, from a dollar a month all the way to a million if you want. But of course, I want to give all my patrons a little extra, so I'll give you a peek behind the creation of each episode, as well as an exclusive first look at what's coming in the future. So if you want a heads up on what's coming next week, you'll have some time to watch the movie before listening to the episode if you hop over to patreon.com slash based on a true story podcast. Once again, that's patreon.com slash based on a true story podcast. You can find a link to that in the show notes too. And now let's compare history with Hollywood's version of The Finest Hours. The movie starts off by introducing us to the two main characters as they meet each other for the first time. They are Bernie Weber, played by Chris Pine, and Miriam Pentinen, played by Holiday Granger. Right away, they hit it off. It's love at first sight. And right away, we're hit with the first inaccuracy in the movie. You see, the movie starts off by putting a date and a place to the events. It's Wellfleet, Massachusetts, December 1951. According to marriage records of the time, Bernard Shalene Weber and Mabel Miriam Pentinen were married in Wellfleet 
1950. So while there was a loving connection between Bernie and Miriam, it wasn't because of love at first sight just before the rescue. So because of this, we know that the next scene where Bernie asks Miriam to marry him is also untrue. In truth, they were already married. Still, when Miriam says she'll stick with him no matter what, that is true. The two were head over heels for each other. In the movie, there's a few mentions of the Landry. While the movie doesn't really talk about this much, it's obviously a cause for tension between Richard Livesey, played by Ben Foster, and Bernie. What they're referring to was a rescue attempt that actually happened. This was about a couple years earlier, on April 7, 1950. The William J. Landry was a shipping boat that was caught in a storm about a mile off Cape Cod. There were actually two ships that were caught in this storm, the Landry and another ship named Four Sisters. The latter ship made its way to a point on the coast where it beached and then waited out the storm. The entire crew survived along with its cargo. The Landry, however, decided to try and make its way about 50 miles up the coast to New Bedford. It was found by a Coast Guard ship which offered a tow line. The Coast Guard ship was larger, it was a cutter, and proceeded to tow the Landry. With the strength of the storm, the tow line was lost, and rather than try to do what the four sisters did and hit the coast to wait out the storm, the Landry continued on. It sank somewhere off the coast, and the next day, the wreckage was discovered. Everyone on board perished in something that most considered to be a needless risk. It didn't need to continue on its own. It could have done what the four sisters did. Since this happened when Bernie Weber was working at the Coast Guard in Massachusetts, it's very likely that he was on board the cutter. But in truth, it was the Captain Hansen on the Landry who made the risky call that ended up taking the lives of the ship's crew. The bulk of the story in the film takes place late one evening, as viewers were on board the SS Pendleton during a nor'easter when the unthinkable happens. Now, if you're like me, you're probably not familiar with the term nor'easter. It's a term used mostly around the New England coast to refer to a cyclone. It's during this storm that the hull of the SS Pendleton breaks in two, separating the front of the ship from the back. Then we're taken back to the Coast Guard station where we find out that the SS Pendleton isn't the only one. There's another ship, the SS Fort Mercer, who has fallen to the same issue. Two ships, each broken in two. This amazing turn of events is true. The date was February 18, 1952. The Nor'easter was blasting winds at 70 knots. That's about 80 miles an hour or 130 kilometers per hour. The ocean itself was heaving with 60-foot waves, that's 18 meters, of uneasy waters thrashing and throwing itself the ship's hull. The Pendleton was coming from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and heading to Boston with a load of 122,000 barrels of kerosene and heating oil. Similarly, the Fort Mercer was the same type of tanker, a T2, and was also carrying a load of kerosene. But the Fort Mercer was headed all the way up to Maine. I'm sure it's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history. And that includes my own personal history too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took on this day a few years ago? Well, I just had one pop up and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four hour drive to a state park. And 
couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden I had a huge unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then because that would have relieved a lot of stress. Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. You can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up, and it'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank. Subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. At about 8 o'clock in the morning, the Fort Mercer was the first to report in that their ship was breaking apart due to the storm. But the movie doesn't really mention the rescue operation for the Fort Mercer. It only mentions Bernie taking out a small rescue boat named the CG-36500 to the Pendleton. And in truth, the crew of the CG-36500 was assigned to rescue the Pendleton. But there was a massive rescue operation underway for the Fort Mercer as well. And Bernie wasn't ordered out to sea first, as the movie makes it seem. Chief Warrant Officer Daniel Clough, played by Eric Bana in the film, first ordered Donald Bangs and his crew to take the CG-36383 out to the Fort Mercer. According to the Coast Guard's official account of the incident, Bernie thought, quote, My God, do they really think a lifeboat and its crew could actually make it out that far to sea in this storm and find the broken ship amid the blinding snow and raging seas? with only a compass to guide them? If the crew of the lifeboat didn't freeze to death first, how would they be able to get the men off the storm-tossed sections of the broken tanker?" End quote. In all, the Coast Guard responded to the distress calls of the two tankers with five 65-foot cutter ships, the Eastwind, Unimac, Yakutat, Achushnet, and the McCullough. Along with these five cutters, two 36-foot rescue boats and a handful of aircraft and other vessels were sent to the two tankers. But out of all of these rescue ships, only one, the CG-36500, was sent to the Pendleton. So you can get a sense that a majority of the rescue operation went to the Fort Mercer. The reason for this is simply because the Coast Guard found out about the Fort Mercer first. So they sent everything they had to rescue the broken ship. And by the time they found out about the Pendleton, no one was left to help. No one, that is, except the CG-36500. Which is probably why the movie focuses mostly on the Pendleton. After the rescue operation for the Fort Mercer was underway, it was Bernie's turn. He wasn't ordered to the Pendleton, though, as the movie indicates. At first, he was ordered to help local fishermen anchor their boats. This is why the CG-36500 was not involved in the rescue operation for the Fort Mercer, so while this massive rescue operation was going on for the Fort Mercer, no one knew the Pendleton's condition. That all changed at 2.55 p.m. when a Coast Guard aircraft 
happened to spot the Pendleton split in two. In the movie, it's Eric Bana's version of Chief Clough who mentions the news. And that is true. They had no idea about the Pendleton until hearing the aircraft's report. This was the Coast Guard's first indication that there were two tankers split in half. Because of the bad weather conditions, it took about an hour for the aircraft to identify the ship as the Pendleton. As the movie focuses on the Pendleton, so will we today. There were 41 people on board the Pendleton when she left Baton Rouge six days earlier. The storm was battering the ship about, but for the most part, she was making good time, considering. Then, at about 5.50 a.m. on February 18th, the crew heard a series of cracking noises. After a heavy lurching, the ship broke in two. In the stern, though, the movie accurately depicts 33 men on board. And just like in the movie, it was Chief Engineer Raymond Siebert, played by Casey Affleck in the film, who took charge and started doling out duties to the rest of the crew. We don't know the specifics of the conversations that took place, but it's safe to assume there was a lot of confusion. Yes, these were experienced seamen, but no one had encountered a ship breaking in two like this. It was a new situation for all. In the movie, when Bernie is ordered to head out into the storm to try to save the Pendleton, it seems as if there's only one small rescue boat to send out, and Bernie doesn't already have a crew for it. He has a hard time convincing people to go. In truth, it was because Bernie was helping fishermen by himself, which we learned about earlier, that's why he didn't have anyone else assigned to his small boat. After Bernie was ordered to head out to the Pendleton, he had to pick a crew. Unfortunately, almost all of the Coast Guard's resources had already been deployed to help the Fort Mercer. The movie makes it seem like no one wanted to go with Bernie. This is true. No one expected the CG-36500 to make it over the bar. The bar is another nautical term, which refers to a large mass of earth underneath the water. This causes a surge in the sea and makes it very difficult to get out to the open ocean especially in 80-mile-per-hour winds and 60-foot waves. In the end, only three men were available. Everyone else had magically disappeared when they heard the CG-36500 was going out to sea. That meant a total of four men on board. They were Chris Pines, Bernie Weber, of course, along with Andrew Fitzgerald, who's played by Kyle Gallner in the movie, Irving Maskey, who's played by John McGarrew, and Ben Foster's version of Richard Livesey. According to the movie, Miriam is calling just as Bernie walks out the door. While we don't know if this missed call actually happened, it's not likely. The reason it's not likely is because, in truth, Miriam had been at home sick for the past couple of days. So it was at about 5.30 p.m. as Bernie and his crew prepared the CG-36500, that Bernie asked a local fisherman by the name of John Stello to call Miriam and let her know about the mission. John is portrayed by Alexander Cook in the movie. Bernie, Andrew, Irving, and Richard left the dock at 5.55 p.m. on February 18, 1952. Back on board the Pendleton, in the movie we learn of a strategy Chief Engineer Siebert has to try and run the engine of the ship and force the stern of the ship on the shore. In truth, the stranded crew used the engines to try and keep the tanker off the bar, something that would have been certain disaster. 
But their attempts to run the engines caused more problems than it helped as it caused the ship to tilt too much. Fortunately, although the ship didn't have a radio, some of the crew had personal radios on which they heard of a rescue attempt. When they heard this, they stopped trying to run the engines. As the movie indicates, navigating the CG-36500 over the bar was easier said than done. This is very much true. Fortunately, the CG-36500 had been designed to right itself if it tipped over. And it did. Many times. Each time it flipped over from the force of the waves, the 90 horsepower engine would die. Andrew, the ship's engineer, would have to make his way into the small engine compartment. Each time, it was a moment's pause as the crew hoped the engine would start up again. And each time, the trusty engine would eventually sputter to life. Not before Andrew earned his fair share of bruises and severe burns from the engine as he tried to restart the engine while the ship was tossed this way and that by the sea. In the movie, you'll notice all of the men on board the CG-36500 were wearing life vests. While that makes perfect sense, it's not really true. In truth, Bernie decided not to wear a life vest. Instead, he opted for better mobility in steering the vessel amid the 40 to 60 foot waves that crashed all around them. Besides, if he were to fall off the 36 foot boat, he probably wouldn't have had much of a chance at survival. By this point, the wind was whipping sleet and seawater sideways. Visibility was next to nothing. After an hour of navigating the frigid waters, Bernie and his crew sensed they were near something big. They couldn't see it, but when they turned on the CG-36500 small searchlight, they saw before them the massive wreck of twisted, groaning metal. They made their way around the ship, and that's when they saw the word Pendleton on the side. They'd found it. They'd just found the stern of the Pendleton. In the movie, the crew of the Pendleton climb down a ladder and jump into the sea one at a time. As each one splashes down, the CG-36500 picks them up. This is what happened. After rounding the stern, the CG-36500 had to wonder how they'd get a hold of the men on board. But they didn't have to wonder that for long. As their light bounced off the stern of the ship, they saw him. There, th there was a man. He was on the deck, waving his arms frantically at the rescue boat. Then he disappeared. Only moments later did he reappear, surrounded by the rest of the Pendleton's crew. Then, a ladder was thrown over the side, and the men started climbing down from the Pendleton. Without any word from Bernie or the Coast Guard's rescue boat, the men started jumping off of the ship. One by one, they splashed into the frigid waters. One by one, they were tossed to and fro by the 60-foot waves. Bernie navigated the CG-36500 around the massive waves, trying to find the bobbing men in the water. One by one, the crew of the CG-36500 grew as they adopted the men from the Pendleton. In the movie, you see the men on the ladder getting slammed against the side of the ship. This causes the men to lose their grip on the slippery frozen ladder. Men were falling off the ladder, some landing directly on the CG-36500 and some into the water. All of this happened. As the waves crashed against the Pendleton, it caused the ship to twist and turn. This, in turn, would cause the ladder to fly out and then whip 
back against the hull. The men on the ladder could only hold on for so long before they'd fall into either the water or, if they were fortunate, into the arms of their crewmates on the CG-36-500. If you're like me, when you were watching the heroic rescue depicted in the finest hours, you couldn't help but notice the number of men on board the CG-36-500 start growing. More and more men. How many can fit on the small rescue boat? In truth, this was an issue. By the time they had about 20 men on board, Bernie's job navigating became that much more difficult as the boat started to handle more sluggishly under the added load. Remember, the CG36500 only had a 90 horsepower engine and it was already battling 60 foot waves, 80 mile an hour winds, and frigid conditions. In the movie, there's two key moments in the rescue operation. The first happens when George Myers, whose nickname was Tiny, and was portrayed by Abraham Benrobi, drops off the ladder. Sadly, Tiny perishes beneath the depths. Then there's another moment when the last person to leave the ship was Casey Affleck's version of Chief Engineer Seabird. He's awarded the honor of being the last to leave as a nod to his leadership. The details were a bit different. In truth, it was Tiny who was last to leave. According to the Coast Guard's website, Tiny was a, quote, 300-pound giant of a man, end quote, and was the inspiration for the Pendleton crew. With 32 men safely on board the CG-36-500, Tiny was the last to leave the ship. He had personally helped as each man tried to make the way down the ladder, either by helping them on the shaking ladder or by offering moral support from above. Finally, it was his turn. As he made his way down the ladder, the ship continued to turn and bang the ladder against the hull. Tiny jumped and was swallowed up by the sea. After a few breathless moments, the crew on the CG-36500 saw him. There he was. He was clutched on one of the Pendleton's 11-foot propeller blades. Bernie had just one more rescue to make. He slowly inched the CG-36500 toward the Pendleton's propeller, being careful not to get too close. If he did, the sea could dash the entire boat against the hull and kill everyone on the CG-36-500. Just as the boat was nearing Tiny, a huge wave crashed into the CG-36-500, forcing it toward the propeller at breakneck speed. Bernie put the boat in full reverse, but it was too late. Tiny Myers was crushed between the two boats as the CG-36-500 was pinned under the Pendleton. Then, a few seconds later, another huge wave pushed the CG-36-500 back. In true Hollywood fashion, this wave proved to be the final straw for the Pendleton. In one fluid motion, the wave had both freed the CG-36-500 from the Pendleton and rolled over the Pendleton one last time, causing it to sink. Sinking with the Pendleton was Tiny Myers. Without a chance to mourn Tiny's loss yet, Bernie had to get the 36 men on his boat home. In the movie, after Bernie reports that they have 32 survivors on board, Chief Clough orders Bernie to head a little further out to sea to meet up with the Coast Guard's cutter, the McCullough. You remember, that was one of the cutters that was sent to the Fort Mercer. Then, they'd have to transfer the survivors yet again in the midst of writhing seas. In the movie, Bernie shuts off the radio. He's not going to meet with the McCullough. This happened. Although they had a radio, they didn't have a compass, and they were essentially lost at sea. There's no way to know 
which way is back to shore and which way is pushing them further out to sea. But Bernie knew they'd have a better chance of beaching the boat on shore than they did finding a cutter in the middle of the ocean. Everyone on board the CG-36500 cheered at Bernie's decision. Understandably, they wanted to get back to solid land as soon as they could. In the movie, back on the pier, it's Miriam who parks her car facing towards the ocean. The town has lost power during the storm, so she flips on her headlights in hopes it helps guide her love back home. As touching a moment as this is, that's not what happened. After what must have seemed like hours of navigating the waters in pitch black conditions, Bernie did finally notice a light. It was the flashing red light of a buoy. Bernie, who had worked the area for most of his life, knew this buoy meant the entrance to the harbor. Following the path in his head, he navigated his way back to safety. In the early morning hours of February 19, 1952, the CG-36500 that had left the day before with four men came back with a total of 36. As soon as he returned, Bernie's first action was to seek out the fisherman, John Stello. He asked John what Miriam had said when he told her about the rescue. John's reply was that he told her Bernie was a hero, but she was too sick to know what was going on. She was delirious. Despite living just five minutes from the Coast Guard station, due to the severity of the storm, Bernie couldn't make it home until the storm subsided days later. In the end, the Coast Guard was called on to rescue a total of 84 crew members from four broken hulls that belonged to two tankers. They were able to rescue an astonishing 70 of those men from what would have otherwise been certain death. Although the movie doesn't mention the Fort Mercer, the combined rescues of the two tankers are considered to this day to be the greatest rescue in the history of the U.S. Coast Guard. The following is a quote from the Coast Guard's website. Weber and his crew of three, Engineman Andrew Fitzgerald, Seaman Richard Livesey, and Seaman Irving Maskey, saved 32 of the 33 Pendleton's crewmen who were on the stern section of the ship. All four Coast Guardsmen were awarded the Gold Life-Saving Medal for their heroic actions. Their successful rescue operation has been noted as one of the greatest in the history of the U.S. Coast Guard. Weber joined the Coast Guard in 1946 and rose to the rank of Chief Warrant Officer during a distinguished 20-year military career that included a tour in Vietnam. He was also a veteran of the Merchant Marine during World War II. He crossed the bar in 2009. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. Much of the information from this episode was pulled from the official Coast Guard's website, which has some fascinating articles about Bernie Weber and the rescue of the SS Pendleton. I'll make sure to put a link to them on the show's website over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. With the holiday season coming up, you'll probably be doing a lot of traveling to visit family and friends. As you're out and about, if you know someone who might be interested in hearing the true story behind movies, it'd mean the world to me if you would share the word about the Based on a True Story podcast. Sharing your recommendation of the show is a great way to grow the reach of the show and to make sure it keeps growing. You can also leave a rating and review on iTunes, and that helps the algorithms there bump the show higher so more people can find it. 
And if you want to get a behind the scenes peek at how the show is made, as well as a first look at what's coming next week, remember, you can become a patron of the show over at patreon.com slash based on a true story podcast. And finally, if you want to get in touch with me directly, and I really hope that you do, I want to hear what you think about the story of Bernie Weber and the SS Pendleton. You can find me on Twitter at Dan Lefebvre, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. I'll put a link to all of these in the show notes. Thanks again for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.